The second reading is taken from John's Gospel, chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a good number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he'd been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, Do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who'd been healed, It's the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, The man who made me well said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, Who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. Thank you very much, Caroline, for reading. We're on to the third of the seven signs of Jesus in John's Gospel that we're looking at in our little series at the moment. First one was the water to wine at Cana, second the healing of the official son at Capernaum, and now we come to the restoration of the invalid at Bethesda. All of these uh, seven signs, as we've mentioned before in the last two weeks, have a similar function in showing, as John chapter 20 says, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that we might have life in his name, by believing and trusting in that. Jesus speaks and things happen, as we read in this particular passage. He says to the lame man, get up and walk, and it happens, uh, indicating that Jesus is indeed the God who spoke the creation at the beginning and said, let there be light, and there was. So also this man walking on the streets of Jerusalem is God himself. And by recognizing that, trusting in that, in Jesus' real identity, we have life in his name because God is the source of life. So the similarity between all of these signs pointing us in that direction. But there's also differentiation. There's also variety. Each of these signs reveals or highlights or reminds us of something particular also about Jesus' character. So the water to wine reminds us that the celebratory aspects, uh, the joy of the coming of the king, uh, coming to his people, the 
healing at Capernaum of the official son when Jesus himself is in Cana, reminding us of the universal nature of his power, not simply uh, a trick to happen at short distance, uh, at proximity, but something that can happen a long way away. And Jesus is Lord over all the earth, uh, even over that town, which is a few days travel away. So now we come to the healing at Bethesda. What other aspects of Jesus's character does this particular sign bring out? Well, let's have a look at the passage. Uh, We see from verse 1 that the setting for this particular one is another festival of the Jews in Jerusalem. We've already seen Jesus in John's Gospel at a Passover back in chapter 2, and we'll see him at another Passover festival in chapter 6. There were three big Jewish festivals which all the Jews were commanded to come up to Jerusalem for every year. So in between Passovers, there would have also been Shavuot, uh, known as Pentecost to us, and Shukot tabernacles and calvin thinks that it was shavuot that jesus was out here and he's often right about these things um, there are three particular sections to the episode we read here about jesus at this particular festival whether it was either of those two so firstly we see him at the pool of bethesda verses two to nine secondly in the streets of uh, well, we go to the streets of jerusalem in 10 to 13 and then in the temple in verses 14 and 15 now, each of these three scenes reminding us of Jesus's compassion. Jesus went up to Jerusalem to this festival to fulfill all righteousness, to do just as the Jews were told to do. He was the perfect sacrifice for sin who didn't do anything wrong. And that includes fulfilling all the aspects of the law, including going up to the festivals at Jerusalem. As well as fulfilling all righteousness, he went also to teach publicly, but also to minister privately, as we see him doing here, as he goes to the pool of Bethesda. There is in Jerusalem, it says verse 2, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which is in Aramaic called Bethesda, surrounded by five colonnades. Here, a number of disabled people used to lie, the blinds, the lame, the paralyzed. Quite an out-of-the-way part of Jerusalem for Jesus to go to. Certainly not the focus of the pilgrimage, the temple of Jerusalem itself, uh, a little bit tucked away. And there would have been hundreds of people there at the best of times uh, trying to get into the waters of the pool there, which they believe would bring them healing. At festival time, no doubt, there were thousands there as people came to Jerusalem uh, for various reasons. And Jesus goes there to this great scene of need and desperation and ministers to somebody in particularly extreme need. Brief aside at this point, I'm going to take two minutes to note the fact that you haven't got a verse four on your sheets. You notice it goes straight from verse three to verse five. Uh, If you're reading in the Pew Bibles themselves, you might see a footnote about verse four, which gives a bit of explanation, actually, as to what the pool of Bethesda was. Uh, Your first thought, though, before reading that might be, well, hang on, why is verse four in a footnote? And the simple answer to that is that that is the result of uh, research in the last 200 years on early New Testament manuscripts. In the 19th century, we, the knowledge of the church expanded greatly as to how the Bibles that we have came together. Uh, my show-and-tell book for today, I always bring one along with me, is Constantine Tischendorf, The Life and Work of a 19th Century Bible Hunter. Fascinating read, do get a copy if you can, about one of the leading researchers in the 19th century who went and found early manuscripts 
and particularly interestingly, his trip to Sinai and finding, finding an early codex from the 4th century of the entire Bible in the monastery there. Uh, people like that really helped us to understand how the New Testament came together and showed that actually verses like uh, 5 verse 4 in John weren't in the original manuscripts. They were later editions. Wonderfully, uh, the vast majority of the Bible that we had at the time in the 19th century was exactly what he found, uh, researchers like that found in the early manuscripts, 99% correspondence. But just a few verses like this one, John 5 verse 4, which uh, were not in the early manuscripts, and so now in our modern Bibles are not included in the main text because they weren't part of the original that John wrote down. Thankfully, no major doctrines founded upon such minor verses that were found to be not in the original, and so we have no need to worry about the the faith changing in the 19th century as a result. Uh, The vast majority of the Bible that we had then is still there now, Uh, There's just these odd verses that got left out. 5 verse 4 was probably added in by a scribe at some point in uh, the centuries uh, after uh, the conversion of the Roman Empire by a scribe who wanted to give some explanation as to what the Pool of Bethesda was. It was obviously some sort of Jewish uh, belief, as I've mentioned, that the pool gave healing properties when an angel came down and stirred the waters and made them move. Uh, Jesus himself in the passage gives no credence to that sort of belief about what the pool was. Uh, He simply goes ahead and heals this man. Uh, But that's the reason why he was by the pool and why these people were trying to get into it. This particular man who was suffering had been there for 38 years trying to climb into the pools which gave these, or he believed, these healing properties. And Jesus knew his suffering. As we see, verse 6, he had supernatural knowledge When Jesus saw him lying there and learned he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Just as Jesus had known that Nathanael was under the fig tree in chapter 2, and he had known about the woman of Samaria's uh, many husbands before meeting her, chapter 4, so he knows about this man's suffering. Jesus grew in wisdom and stature in his human nature, but in his divine nature he knows all things. Those two centers of consciousness don't mean there's two Jesuses. There's one person with those two um, centers of consciousness. A bit of a mystery for us, but truth. A crippled man didn't realize who Jesus was uh, in response. Uh, He assumed Jesus was asking him, do you want to get into the pool or not? Why are you not getting up and getting into it? Why are you not making a fuss about trying to climb in? So he says to him in verse 7, Sir, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me, not realising that Jesus here is offering him direct and immediate healing. As I say, Jesus makes no comment about the folklore. He just goes ahead and speaks these words, these amazing words in verse 8. Get up, pick up your mat and walk. Jesus speaks the word and it is so. Jesus speaks and things happen. Great power, God himself at work. No disconnect between his will and reality. Uh, In the same way that um, God spoke at creation, let there be light, and there simply was by the power of his word. Uh, Very unlike us, who have a great disconnect between our wills and reality. I had to 
climb out of bed this morning and switch a light switch to get the light to come on. Um, Sadly, not quite as easy uh, to get the light on for me. We can't just say things and make them happen. It'd be wonderful to walk into Addenbrooke's and say to everybody there, get up and go. Uh, But sadly, we can't do that. But wonderfully, Jesus can. And we see that in his sign at Bethesda. Jesus can bring things from nothing. Spinal cord that simply isn't there, he can restore. Muscle tissue that has been wasting away for 38 years, he can instantly restore, such that somebody can not only walk, but pick up their mats and wander away. As we've said, this is a wonderful sign that Jesus is the Messiah. Who else could do these things? But it's also a sign of his compassion. Not simply in that he went to Bethesda, not simply that he identified a case of extreme need, somebody who's been there for four decades suffering, but that he said to him, get up and walk, and healed him. And just as Jesus knew that man's needs, so he knows our needs as well. The cripple in Bethesda no doubt had some very dark days when he thought all hope was lost. He'd been there for decades He was on the sidelines. Everybody else was climbing in the pool ahead of him. He had nobody to help him. Nobody cared about him. He'd been forgotten about. And he was going to die in this miserable condition, in this awful place. But Jesus knew exactly what was going on. And likewise, Jesus knows our dark days too, when we can feel like all hope is lost. This is an awful condition we're in, and we can see no light, no way out of it. We feel like nobody cares And nobody's there to help. And we might not have Jesus there physically present with us, but he is with us in those dark days, knowing what's going on by his spirit, which is, of course, the promise, the guarantee that one day we will be in his presence, not just for a moment in the pool, but for eternity. Is that it for this sign? Do we leave it there with the the good news of a wonderful healing, a wonderful sign of Jesus' divinity, Uh, praise from the man well sadly not Um, although the negative response we're about to read does highlight further Jesus' own compassion so on to scene two of uh, our episode at the festival in Jerusalem and we go to the streets and we find an encounter between the man who's been healed and the Jewish leaders verse 10 they said it's the sabbath The law forbids you to carry your mats. What are you doing? Now, fair enough to them. There is a command in Jeremiah chapter 17 that people shouldn't carry burdens in and out of the gates of the city, which was intended to prevent commerce going on, people carrying bundles of goods around. That was a narrow command about carrying things for commercial purposes on the Sabbath. They've obviously applied it widely in terms of any burden, carrying anything about on the Sabbath. And certainly when the man explains in verse 11 what's going on, they should realize that they uh, have stopped and searched him for the wrong reasons. He says to them, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. At which the right response to that from the Jewish leaders would be, well, hang on, wow, that's amazing. Uh, You've been healed. Fantastic. If they didn't already know him, what were you healed of? Well, you were crippled for 38 years and you've been healed. Praise God. And more likely, if they did know him, oh yes, you're that man from Bethesda who's been there for such a long time. Praise God you've been healed. That would be the right response. 
to this wonderful healing, to this explanation of what he's doing carrying a bundle, which is not a commercial bundle, on the Sabbath. But instead, sadly, we read in verse 12, they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The spirit of patience, of mercy, and of praise that should be there in their hearts is absent. Instead, a harsh and misguided spirit of persecution. Who is this fellow who told you to get up? Now, sadly, that is a reaction, a state of heart that we do see still today. Uh, legalistic, misguided, uh, narrow-minded approach to Jesus, which sees wonderful works that he's done, as we've noted in our memory verse for this month, the wonderful works of the Lord. But instead of responding with praise, with generosity, with inquiry, with intrigue, instead responding with hatred and with persecution. How dare he? We see that to greater or lesser degrees in others and sometimes even in ourselves and our own hearts when we don't respond rightly to reading of the wonderful works of the Lord. But as we say, this reaction of the Pharisees serves only to further highlight the wonderful compassion of Jesus. It's a contrast, as it often is in the gospel, between Jesus on the one hand and the existing Jewish leaders on the other hand. Who would we rather have as our leader? The uh, environment Jesus came into was fixated on proscriptions and limitations in the law, which they extended ad nauseam. Is that sort of leadership we would want? Or would we want the leadership of Jesus, open-handed, generous, kind, compassionate, and above all, powerful? This sign is given to show the very author of the law and point to him. But the Jewish leaders took it as an exposure of a common breaker of the law to be persecuted. When in fact, as we've already noted, Jesus was abiding perfectly by the law, uh, fulfilling every uh, aspect of it, even going up to the temple for all of the festivals. I think it's an obvious choice as to which of those types of leadership is the preferable one. And we move on to scene three and a further and final highlighting of this great compassion of Jesus as we come to the temple itself. And we read in verse 14, Jesus found the man at the temple and said to him, see, you are well again, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Not only had Jesus found out this man in great need at Bethesda, but he went to the temple with these great crowds of tens of thousands attending the festival and found him out. It's pretty hard to find somebody out in a a massive football crowd uh, or a great uh, throng going to a a music festival. But that's the sort of environment Jesus was in in this festival. And he found out, he made the efforts to find out this man who he'd healed a little bit earlier and say to him some words of follow-up, some uh, words of pastoral counsel after the healing. That's not simply materialistic inquiry that he makes. It's not just how's the back doing, how are you feeling, how are you getting on uh, now that you've been healed, but he gives him spiritual counsel. He takes the opportunity of this turning point in the man's life to give him serious direction. Sin no more. Now we should be clear that Jesus isn't implying 
by that that it was because of the man's particularly great sin that he had suffered a particularly great penalty in life. Jesus is clear elsewhere in the Gospels. There's no one-for-one parity in that way between an individual sin and an individual suffering. That's a sort of idea from Eastern philosophy, by contrast. He talks about the Tower of Siloam and those who died in that uh, catastrophe or a massacre by Pilate of some worshippers and asks, were the people who suffered in these ways any worse sinners than the rest in Jerusalem? No, of course they weren't. But unless you likewise repent, you will like, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. He takes these calamities not as a lesson on individuals' particularly bad sin, but as an opportunity for a broader lesson about the danger of future judgment. The evil of death and calamity exists certainly in the world because we live in a sinful world. Sin must one day be judged fully and fairly. And so these calamities point to the future judgment. The lesson from them is not about individuals' particular badness, evil, but about the general evil in the world and the need to repent and prepare for the future judgment. And likewise, the healing of this man isn't taken as an opportunity to scold him for his particularly bad sin, but to warn him about the future. Don't just rejoice in this wonderful healing now, but think about and prepare for the future. Turn away from sin and turn to God. Well, likewise for us, we need to remember to not let our physical ease, uh, let us take our eye off the ball spiritually. But may it be a reminder for us to turn away from sin and turn to God while we have the opportunity. So, three little scenes there, all pointing to Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God in whom we have life, but also pointing to his compassion in curing, in contrast, and in counsel and follow-up. Let's pray and give thanks for that Christ. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for all of the signs recorded in this book of John for us and for the life that you give us in Jesus' name. We praise you for such a kind King as the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask that you would help us with that healed man to turn from sin and turn to Jesus, that we also might see him in Jerusalem when it's made new. Amen.